When we lived in the Chicago area, violent thunderstorms were a way of life. Something expected in the spring and the summer. One afternoon, we were parked on a street near New Trier High School, waiting with others to pick up our kids. Suddenly, the sky grew dark and ominous. The wind picked up. Trees around us and above us thrashed and shook violently, branches flying everywhere. A tree in front of us fell over, trapping a car. A tornado. Nowhere to go. Nothing to do. Didn't even have time to scream. Then it was over. All around us was stunned chaos. We were all right, and miraculously, no one else was injured or killed. Walking through our neighborhood in Wilmette, we were stunned. Trees had snapped and fallen. They were scattered like pickup sticks. At a cemetery near our house, ancient trees were uprooted, exposing graves and coffins, toppling headstones. Chaos is disorienting. You have nowhere to hide. You put your head down and hope to get through it. And sometimes you cry for help. Psalm 86 is a cry for help. It is filled with urgency. Incline your ear. Answer me. Preserve my life. Save your servant. Be gracious to me. Listen to my cry. Teach me your way. Turn to me. Give strength to me. Show me your favor. This is a psalm of personal lament. The psalmist speaks from a place of disorientation, Walter Brueggemann says. Nothing is as it should be. Disorientation is confusing. Nothing is normal. Nothing is where we expected it to be. The ground shakes under our feet, and we hang on. This pandemic has been disoriented. Boarded up buildings are disorienting. Fear and anger are disorienting. Masks are disorienting. Schools without classrooms and graduations without ceremonies are disorienting. Death without funerals is disorienting. Virtual meetings are disorienting, especially when everyone is talking at the same time. Empty shelves are disorienting. But even more disorienting is racial hatred. A knee on the neck and a shot in the back are disorienting, and they are deeply disturbing. The psalmist prays our hearts. The psalmist prays our fears. The psalmist prays our anger and our anguish. The psalmist prays our hopes and our frustrations. The psalmist prays our disappointments. In praying with the psalmist, we move through disorientation toward reorientation. Things aren't what they once were, and they will never be the same. But we can take our bearings and move forward. In the psalm, Brueggemann says, 
There is movement through petition to complaint, to promise, a promise to start all over again after deliverance. Putting it another way, the psalmist cries out, listen to me, I'm desperate, deliver me, my life is yours. Then there is this, gladden the soul of your servant, stir up some hope. The Hebrew word translated soul is nephish. It means your whole self, your life itself, your very being, all that makes you, you, your mind, your imagination, your emotions. Gladden my nephish. Reorient my life. Set things right. It's not easy to do. The psalmist cries out. In the lectionary, this psalm is placed with the story of the slave woman, Hagar, who provides a son and heir to Abraham. But she is banished to the desert with her son by Abraham at the demand of Sarah, who fears that the slave child Ishmael will receive the inheritance Sarah believes belongs only to her son Isaac. Isaac, whose name means laughter, has brought unexpected joy to Sarah and Abraham. Ishmael, however, Abraham's firstborn son, is a threat to Isaac and to Sarah. Ishmael's name means, ironically, God has listened. He and Hagar are banished to the desert, and there's no laughter in the desert. There is no hope for them there, only tears. The promise that God will make a nation out of Ishmael is small comfort. Psalm 86 could be the song of Hagar and Ishmael. It gives words to their desolation and disorientation. Their story has no happy ending, at least not in Genesis. Instead, there is exile and a consolation prize. There is no inheritance. Sarah gets her way. Isaac gets the inheritance, and Ishmael is cast out. The little boys who played together become enemies, and the patriarch Abraham, who hedged his bets to get an heir by sleeping with his slave, rejects the heir and sends him and his mother into the wilderness. I recently read a biography of Thomas Jefferson by black Harvard University legal historian and professor Annette Gordon-Reed, and Peter Ornuff, retired professor from the University of Virginia. Thomas Jefferson, author of the Declaration of Independence, was also the father of children by his black slave, Sally Hemings. Sally Hemings, with her children, remained slaves and were never freed by Jefferson in his lifetime. At his death, they were left to make it on their own. Jefferson's black descendants were only acknowledged as heirs in recent years, beginning with Fawn Brody's book, Thomas Jefferson, An Intimate History. Her research cast light on what Jefferson's white heirs had always dismissed as nothing but scandalous rumors. 
But Jefferson's black children and grandchildren and the descendants of Sally Hemings told the story through the years. In a letter, Jefferson once described himself as the most blessed of the patriarchs. This Abraham of the Enlightenment and American democracy owned black human beings, Gordon Reed and Orna Wright. The man who upended the political and social order on behalf of the downtrodden in the American Revolution was the father and grandfather of slaves. Why bring Thomas Jefferson into this, you may ask, to bring home this point? Isaac was a child of privilege. Ishmael was not. Both were children of a patriarch. Isaac's story and the story of his descendants fills the rest of Genesis. It is the story of the privilege and the entitlement of someone who has been chosen over someone else. Hagar and Ishmael's story is the story of rejection and marginalization, the story of a slave child and his mother cast out. Nowhere to go. Gordon Reed and Ornif remind us that it was at Monticello that Thomas Jefferson exercised what they call patriarchal authority over his household and brute force over an enslaved people, the Commonwealth of Virginia defined as property. Jefferson's vision of a chosen country, they say, did not encompass the family he had with Sally Hemings. In his vision for America, Jefferson had no place for the enslaved people who worked his fields, built and maintained his house, and kept life going on his plantation. Therein lies the parallel to our Genesis narrative. It is the story of a people used and abused, of a people cast out and abandoned. The story of Jefferson's slaves is the story of black Americans who, like Hagar and Ishmael, were left to fend for themselves in a wilderness of lingering racism. Their lives never really mattered or never mattered much. They were always outliers, never among the chosen. It could be called a footnote of shame in the Bible in the biblical narrative. But footnotes, especially footnotes of slavery and exclusion, are footnotes only to the people who write the stories, not to the characters in the stories. In this case, a slave woman and her baby boy. And during their time in the desert, generations of descendants were born all of whom heard the story and repeated the story of the promise given and the promise taken away. So it was for the descendants of Hagar. They were children of Abraham. So too for the children and descendants of Sally Hemings. They were children of Thomas Jefferson. Like Ishmael, they were outsiders 
in the world of chosen descendants, acknowledged only in whispers. It's always been hard for the children of Sarah and Isaac to listen to the children of Hagar and Ishmael. It's hard for those on the inside to listen to those on the outside and, having listened, to embrace them as kin. In his book, Stride Toward Freedom, the story of the Montgomery bus boycott, written in 1958, Martin Luther King writes hopefully that, along with black Americans changing image of themselves, there has come, he says, an awakening of moral consciousness on the part of millions of white Americans concerning segregation. 62 years later, those hopes remain largely unrealized. As white privilege, the racism of the clueless persists. These past few weeks has ripped the veneer off our cluelessness. We see ourselves as we have never seen ourselves before. It is, for those who will look, unsettling and deeply disturbing. What we are talking about here is sin and what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. We can only break through to the cross, Bonhoeffer said, through confession, where we finally acknowledge the truth about ourselves. Bonhoeffer, whose understanding of the gospel was deepened by his experience at the Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem while he was a student at Union Theological Seminary in the 1930s, asks why we find it so much easier to confess our sins to God instead of confessing them to other Christians. We must ask ourselves, he says, whether we have been confessing our sins to ourselves and granting ourselves absolution all the while denying the sin within us. This is certainly true of the sins of racism and white privilege. In our text from Romans 6, Paul, speaking of cheap grace, asks, What then are we to say? Shall we continue to sin in order that grace may abound? By no means, he says. He goes on. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? To confess our sin is to die. And having confessed our sin, to be raised from death to life and set free from bondage. Therefore, Paul says, we have been buried with him by baptism into death so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God, we too may walk in newness of life. We know, he says, that our old self was crucified with him so that we will no longer be enslaved to sin. Christ sets us free from bondage so that we may set 
others free. And Christ gives us the eyes to see how we have bound others to a past they never asked for or wanted. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, Jesus tells his disciples. And whatever you loose on earth, whatever you set free on earth will be set free in heaven. We have the power in Jesus' name to set others free. Why is it then that so often we keep them bound instead of setting them free? Is it because we are bound so tight by the privilege of Isaac that we can't see the bondage of Ishmael? In John's Gospel, Jesus says to those with hard hearts, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. They answer him, We are children of Abraham and have never been slaves to anyone. Forgetting, it would seem, the story of Exodus, but also oblivious to their own bondage and the burden they have placed on others. So it is for all of us. In our text from Matthew 10, Jesus tells his disciples, verse 26 and following, Nothing is covered up that will not be uncovered, and nothing secret will not become known. What I say in the dark, tell in the light. What you hear whispered, shout from the rooftops. And he reminds them that there will be conflict. Truth does that. Then he tells them, If you won't take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of me. Those who keep their life will lose it. But those who lose their life for my sake, he said, will find it. Cling to privilege, and you will lose it. Let go of your life, and you will find it. Jesus talks about reorientation in the midst of disorientation. It's called the kingdom of God. Turn things upside down because things have already been turned upside down. A storm is breaking all around us. It's been a long time coming. We can't hide. We can only go through it. Let us pray with Hagar through the chaos. Let us pray with the forgotten, the marginalized. Let us pray with all those cast out and cast aside. In your mercy, Lord, set us free. Set us all free. Break down the walls that divide us. We are all children of Abraham. Incline your ear to us, O Lord. Listen to us. Preserve and protect those who are vulnerable. Be gracious to those who look for you, who cry to you. In our trouble, answer us. You alone are God. Gladden the heart of your servant, O Lord. Save all those who trust you. Teach us your way, O Lord, and we will walk in your truth. Give us undivided hearts. Reorient our lives and deliver us from the curse of what has always been. Raise us to life 
Hear our cry, O Lord, hear our cry, and gladden the heart of your servant. Amen.